This is Bumping Into, where we have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. Hi everybody, welcome to the show. This week on Bumping Into, I bump into Greg Ford, the founder of the iconic Queensland business, Trade Tools. For those listeners either not in Queensland or not into trade, Trade Tools is a collection of specialty tool shops. There are over 270 staff across almost 20 stores and turning over more than $200 million a year. What initially drew me to Trade Tools and Greg's story was the fact that their model is built on sustainable business practices. It's a low debt formula. It's got a key focus on providing a happy workplace for their staff and a big focus on customer service. There isn't an obsession with the lowest price and shaving margins, um, pushing staff purely just to get turnover. So it does go in stark contrast to a lot of other businesses that, that seemingly look successful for a short period of time. As you'll hear in the story, this business was built back in the 1980s and Greg still manages to manufacture a lot of their Renegade range here in Australia. And it's very important to Greg and the brand that there is still Australian manufacturing taking place. This is a great story about a family-run business straight from the founder himself. So what I wanted to do is go back to before you came here, the story of how you came. Um, well, I, I was basically a school dropout. I left school when I was 16. And um, we're talking in the 1960s, you see. Oh, okay. So everyone went uh, for a bit of a wander around. Well, I did anyway. And uh, I went wandering around the world as a hippie. So there's pictures up there of me in India and places like that. Oh, geez, okay. Um, that would have been a big 1960 travelling. Yeah, well, that place. was in the early 70s, that was. And I ended up in Australia. Uh, it seemed like a good place to go. I was just 21 when I came here. And um, I wanted to go to Canada where they wouldn't let me in with a work visa. So I found out that um, I could get into Australia because I had a British passport. So I just oh. turned up here because it seemed like the right thing to do and it was getting cold in Europe, so... I came here and uh, I spent um, four or five years wandering around Australia, going to Indonesia. Uh, I went back to the UK once, I went overland from Darwin to London and then I met a lot of Aussies and came back and I started getting homesick for Australia so I came back here permanently in 1977 and um, I got a job centre in real estate on Sydney's North Shore. You know, yeah, prime spot. As you do, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I know it was interesting times. Um, and, and, as an interesting aside, I bought my first house at the end of 1977 with the deposit, which was a personal loan, and I actually, I, I actually lied to the bank to get that, and that was the 10% deposit. And myself and my girlfriend, she later became my wife, we bought a house for um, what was then three and a half times the average annual Australian wage. And that same house now is worth 15 times the average annual Australian wage. So things for young people were a lot easier oh. back in the 70s than they yeah. are now, you know. Anyway, um, my, uh, my mum and dad, um, my dad's Welsh. And uh, he, uh, he, 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 he knew that I was living in Australia and he thought he wouldn't mind living in a warmer climate. And then he got fired when he was 55 years old because that was the rules back then when he worked for a company called Crown Forklifts. And he'd been in the tool industry all his life. And um, so they came to Australia in 1978. And the old man got a job in a tool company in Sydney, which is he'd been in the tool industry all his life, you see. Um, 
and uh, he did quite well actually. Um, and they bought a house, they sold a house in the UK and they bought a house in Sydney. And then house prices virtually doubled in two years. So um, on paper we'd made quite a bit of money out of the house that we bought and the house that he'd bought. And then he said, why don't we sell these houses and uh, move to Queensland, because he'd been here on holiday and I knew Queensland reasonably well. Because um, I lived for, in the 19, 1975, I lived in a hippie commune at Palm Cove in North Queensland. So uh, I thought, oh, I wouldn't mind going to Queensland. And everyone was sort of migrating to Queensland. So we decided to come to Queensland and open a tour company. And um, it, my name is Greg, obviously. His name was Len. He's dead now. So we combined the name Greg and Len and we, we started a company called Glenford's, yep. um, which we had for five years. And then he got homesick and he wanted to go back to his native Wales. So we sold that company and we all went back to the UK. And um, he bought a hotel and it was quite successful. And he made a lot of money out of that. And I went back to the UK and I couldn't stand the weather. So after about a couple of years, I said, I'm sick of this. So we went back, myself and my wife. And um, after two years, I said, I can't stand here any longer. You know, I want to go back to Queensland. So I came back to Queensland and he put his hotel on the market and sold it. Then he came back here to retire. I didn't know what else to do, so I started another tour company. And I called it Queensland Trade Tools. And that was in 1987. And it was primarily because I didn't know what else to do. It was the only trade that I'd really... I really got to know, if you can call it a trade. And uh, I had a couple of mates that were with us that used to work for us at the old company Glenford's that weren't doing very well. One of them was an alcoholic. So we started a, a, a store in Capalabar and I gave them all a job. So it was really, we, we started Queensland Trade Tours in order to give myself and my mates a job. And nothing's changed. That's all we've ever done. And they say, do not employ your friends. Well, that's all yeah. I've ever done. So we just kept employing people that we knew. Wow. And that was in 1987. And I think our turnover for the first year was $700,000. And our turnover this year would be not far off $200 million. But Even back then, that's a lot of money. Well, not really, no. No, it wasn't. Not, not in this industry. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, we did all right, you know. And, uh, you know, we all had ponytails and drove around in V8s and, you know, used to drink beer after work and all that sort of stuff. And then after about a year or two, it started to get a bit serious. Now, turnover started to climb, so we started to actually run it like a proper company. And um, one of those, out of those um, original three guys, there was myself, a guy called Peter Barrett. Unfortunately, he died. He was an alcoholic. And a fellow called Rick Stewart. Rick Stewart is retired, but his son is now a managing director. Oh, right. Um, so it's very much a family business, you know. Yeah, so you still um, keep all those close ties. Yeah, and uh, we've, we've actually got people working here that worked for me and my dad in Glenford's in the early 1980s. One guy, Dave Cooper, is still here, and he's been working for me on and off uh, for 41 years. He joined us when he was 17, and he's now, I think, 58 or something. <laughs> so uh, one thing we do do, we, we tend to employ people that we know. Yeah. Um, and... Um, uh, just to, to, to backtrack slightly, I worked for a very, very clever Jewish guy for a year in London when I was 20, and he actually ran an estate agents. And uh, I had a Jewish girlfriend at the time. Her name was Felicity. And um, she, she gave me, well, she actually wasn't Jewish, but her stepfather was. And she gave me a Star of David typing, which is the Star of David, which is, of course, the, 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 you know, the, on the flag of Israel. And I went for a job interview, and the guy there 
I didn't realise they were all Jews, but the guy there thought I was Jewish because he saw my Star of David typing, so he gave me a job, you see. So in real estate in a very expensive part of London called Notting Hill. And uh, I met all these incredible Australians. One of them, I'm pretty sure, was Screw Turner, the guy that started Flight Centre. I'm sure it was him. He was driving me around in a V12 Jaguar. We were looking for a flat for him to buy. And they kept telling me about how good Australia was. So that was one of the reasons I came here. I was only 20. Um, and so, you know, the Star of David typing got me the job. I met all these Aussies that all lived in West London, near Earl's Court, which was called Kangaroo Valley, you know. And uh, so I thought, I'll go and try Australia for a bit. I came here for a year and I'm still here. And that was in 1973. So where was I? Um, anyway, uh, getting back to Queensland Trade Tools. Started in 87. I think we opened our fourth store in 1992, which we've still got. And now we've got 17 stores, uh, two that we don't own that belong to friends of ours. We're about to open a 20th store. Um, everyone at Trade Tools is always paid commission on the previous week's turnover, and that's the reason our staff tend to stay. Our average staff tenure is eight years, nearly, and that's the highest of any sales organisation that I know. So we just creep, you know, we, we, we creep along, we, we're old-fashioned. We never borrow money. Never borrow money. Never? No. We only, um, we, we only ever, um, we've only ever borrowed money once, which was to buy this particularly large building, and we paid that back in a year. Um, but we only ever expand if we've got the cash in the bank, and we only ever expand if we can buy a building freehold, and uh, we fill it full of stock for money that we've already um, earn. So we never never have any borrowings at all. So you're never going backwards to catch up. You're nope. always moving forward when the time's yep. right. Yep. I want to make yeah. sure that we're secure and um, if there's ever a major downturn, uh, Trade Tools is very, really affected. In fact, I've been in business now for 42 years. I have never, ever put anyone off because of a downturn. And you've weathered a few because you had the one in the 90s, the recession of the 90s. And then we had the GFC. Yeah. So that's two big cannonballs that no, have we had one in the early 1990s. Um, there was a very uh, severe softening of, of building activity in the mid 1990s. In actual fact, property prices went down. Um, there was the implosion at the end of the 1990s. Um, th 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 there's been quite a few mini recessions in the construction yeah. industry. In fact, there was quite a bad one after the GFC, um, and uh, it, was, it was one of the severest I've ever seen. Yeah. But our figures only went down by about 10%. Wow. Yeah. And with no debt. No, no debt. Worries. Doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, we own all our buildings, so we end up paying rent. Yeah. So is know? that part of the thing, the, the whole strategy yeah. is you, you turn up, you buy it, you own it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that way you're not beholden. All the buildings, we, apart from two, which um, we've leased, one of them we've leased for 30 years. I've, I've tried to buy it, but the guy said no. Um, all the buildings that we, we, we occupy, we own outright, wow. including others that we own now that used to be trade tool stores and we moved to bigger premises and we just kept them. So we've got this huge property portfolio. So if you go back to that point, you've had the first shop, you've got enough capital to do a second shop. How, at what point, was it four shops, five shops in where you thought, uh, that, that's we're okay now. We, we've, we're on a roll. Everything is just going to keep this progression. Or was there ever that going home and thinking, oh, shit, what's this? What's that? It's stressing. You know, did the stress turn off and the comfort crept in at X shops? No, I'm not really an empire builder. I've got no interest in that, you know. I don't need to stroke my ego in that regard. Um, 
if, if ever we've got excess cash in the bank through accumulated profits, and it's easy to do if you have no debt and you own all of your buildings. It's the oldest trick in the book. Yeah, yeah. You know, you own everything, you don't lease anything, you don't expand until you've got the cash to do it. And then it is the miracle of compound interest. Things just accumulate. And so, you know, we have a competitor, for instance, uh, not, far up the, not far up the road from here, um, where they've got a, a premises where they're paying $5,000 a week rent. We're just around the corner. We just pay the rates. So we're $5,000 a week in front from the moment we open the door on Monday morning. And that's a lot. It's a huge amount of money. Yeah, yeah. so there's no, we're virtually unbreakable. We're as unbreakable as yeah, we can, as be. can be. And it's the old story, you know, you can build a hut out of straw or one out of mud or one out of bricks. Uh, you know, we built trade tools out of bricks. We've got a huge property portfolio. Yeah. yeah. And um, that is, I mean, we're virtually unbreakable. And other states, has that ever been to do the whole Victoria, New South um, Wales? Yeah, our, we've got, just about got Queensland covered now. Um, and we're a bit lazy in that regard. We try not to open stores that are too difficult to manage. Um, now what we're planning to do is head down the coast of New South Wales. Okay. We've got a store in Tweed Heads, yeah. and we're looking to open one in Ballina, and then probably Grafton, Coffs Harbour, Port Macquarie. To do that. Stepping we down. do very well in regional areas. Um, almost half of the product that we sell, we import directly ourselves. In the last financial year, we unloaded the equivalent of 720 foot containers. Wow. We've got containers being unloaded every day, all day. So over 40% of everything that you buy from a trade tool store has got our own brand Renegade Industrial on it, or else is imported and is, is exclusive to us. And a lot of that stuff is the sort of stuff that rural people buy, especially farmers. So we do extremely well in regional areas. Our Toowoomba store is one of our strongest stores. We've got a Cairns store. So we like going into regional centres. Yeah. And that's where our aim is probably going to be over the next 10 years, to open more stores in regional areas, because we've been very successful when we've done it. And that's probably, uh, I suppose a lot of other people would see that as, no, I want to stick right in the heart of where everything is. You sort of well, I'll go this way and capture the market share. Well, it's the old, uh, it's the old adage, isn't it? I mean, if you're if you're a baker and you want to open a new bakery, you go to a town with no good bakeries. You don't go to yeah. a town with three good bakeries already. You know, yeah, yeah. It's so simple, but people sort of like they don't see it. Yeah. I mean, we have people, we have competitors that come and open stores just around the corner from us. Yeah. Thinking they're going to steal our customers, and then they wonder why they don't. Yeah. And I said to one of my competitors years ago. I said, I'm not out to steal your customers, but you're out to steal mine. Yeah. If you come near me, um, you might take 10% of my business. But if ever I open near you, I'll steal half of your customer base. And uh, in the last two or three years, we've done it to two of their stores. We've told them we're going to open a trade tool store long before they've opened their own store. They haven't listened. They've opened a store, sold it to a franchisee. We've opened a store, and in, at least in one case uh, in Cairns, they closed the store within a few months. They couldn't compete because they can't compete with our business model. Jeez. And the other thing is, you know, we have a lot of people here that are shareholders. Yeah. yeah. If, you've, if you uh, have worked for Trade Tours for 10 years, which is a long time, and uh, we've decided that uh, the rest of the shareholders have decided that we want to keep you in the mix, um, we give you a bonus which allows you to buy shares in trade tools. Yeah. So we've now got um, 
27 original shareholders um, who have shares that would virtually make them almost millionaires each. The shares are that valuable. Wow. Um, and we have another tranche of shares which takes, it up, takes us up to 51 shareholders. A lot of those are later shareholders. And that means that they not only stay in the business, but you know they've got, they've got skin in the game. So in almost every store that you go into, you will, you will meet someone in that store that owns a part of Trade Tools. So it's been spread around. And you know, that gives us another form of foundation that our competitors generally don't have. Yeah, yeah. Because you've knocked back the franchise model. You yeah, 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 it wouldn't suit us. Yeah, it wouldn't suit us. So, and is there a reason why, I mean, I'm... I don't think franchising in this industry works. Yeah. I've never seen it work. I've seen it tried. There's one large company that does it. I don't think it's a particularly successful model. They don't seem to do too bad at it. Um, although that company's recently been taken over, and I would suspect that the new owners will probably try and buy some of those franchises back. Franchising in this industry doesn't work. In fact, franchising in a lot of industries doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah definitely. So you've got, what, roughly, I think, was it 250 staff? Yeah, yeah a bit more than that, about 270. 270 yeah, staff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how, so obviously there's no doubt the model and the feeling is very customer service based. That's, that's the huge thing there. And, and like, you know, you can walk into anywhere and if you get a bad bank teller, I don't really have them anymore, but bad whatever, it can do a lot of damage. That one interaction, you'd be like, oh, stuff them, I move on. Mm. So how hard is it to find... 270 people that understand that culture and and you know that's a lot of personalities it's not easy and it's become harder as the years have rolled on we do tend to attract a, a reasonably high level of person when they find out how we run this company that we're debt free we own all our buildings if you've been here long enough you get offered shares Everyone in this in everyone in this company, everyone in this company is paid a weekly commission on the previous week's turnover. So, if the company does well, everyone does well. If we do badly, everyone does badly. We might have two bad weeks a year and fifty really good ones, and sometimes we double our figures. So, you know, our our staff generally earn a lot more than they would if they worked elsewhere doing a similar job. That's one of the reasons they stay. So, I mean, we spread the love around. It's, yeah. It works, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been accused of being too generous in the past, but I've done quite well out of it. So I'm not in it for yeah. the money, really. I'm in it for the fact that, you know, we run a business and everyone's involved. We've got customers to look after. We, we, we have a public service to do in terms of the tool industry. As my father used to say, the world's second oldest industry, selling tools. <laughs> and, um, you know, we try and do the right thing by everyone. And that includes suppliers customers and staff because yeah. you can't have one without the other you know you all this about the customers always right well that's nonsense mm -hmm. whoever said that doesn't really understand retail the customer is often right not always but you've, you've got to have all of those three different elements working properly and together customers staff and suppliers when you get that right you've got a successful business and I think too when you take the pressure so obviously a workplace has a feel and what I've noticed, so my regular is Burley. When you walk in there, there doesn't have that sense of 
quick, time is money, go, go, go. That doesn't exist, as opposed to your competitors who are in a few doors of either side type thing. Um, you know, like I, I was in one of your competitors' shops when they first opened and there was an old guy came in, like an old farmer type guy. And he had, he, he was looking, going through all these sanding belts and he couldn't find the one he needed. And he said to me, oh, I've got an old vintage Makita thing and the belts are this size. Um, and the guy at the front won't help me. And I'm like, oh, I said, okay, well, have you got the part number? He goes, no, but I, I know this. So I Googled it. I found him the Makita part number. And I said, well, go up and ask him. He went up to the counter and the guy said, no, mate, we, we don't do that. If it's not on the shelf, I can't help you. And I was like, wow. So he came back and he told me and I said, oh, well, look, here, just take this next door on Monday. Take that part number. That shouldn't be an issue. If they make it, they can order it. Um, and then, you know, I had gone into to the Trade Tools Burley soon after and the guy I met in there, I went in there to buy a little grinder and it was a pure thing of, I ended up learning the difference between this type of grinding wheel and the one that's got the, the bevel that comes up and this is for that and this is for that. All a reflection of total separate cultures where that guy just was a box mover. That's all his job is there. I want to move those boxes and mm. someone else is here to interact and create a reason for me to come back. So, and it's funny, like you said, some things some people just don't get. Well... I know what company you're talking about, and it's a very successful business, but it's not a business that I would like to own. Yeah. Because they're only in it for the money, and they're only in it to move as much stock as possible. And I don't think that's doing a public service. And I think Trade Tools does a public service. And the, the example that you made is an excellent one. Um, who knows who that man is? He could be a billionaire. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, if he's got a belt sander and he wants a belt for it, you know, any tool company should be able to solve that problem, um, and we certainly can. And uh, I mean, small fish are sweet. You know, I, I never mind if someone comes in and spends fifteen bucks. Um, and every retailer knows, and everyone with any business now knows that as you sell smaller stuff, the margins increase. So we don't mind, you know, spending a bit of time with someone if they just want to spend a few dollars. That's part of what we do. And sometimes I'll walk back in next week and spend ten grand. Yeah, yeah. But the, one of the major differences between the company that you refer to and ours is that, to my knowledge, the people in that company, our major competitor, are paid individual commission rates. So they're paid on their own personal sales. And oh, that's why that's what places like JB Hi-Fi, they hover at the door and they try and give you their card and make sure you get their names. If you go back to buy it, you always speak to them. In a trade tool store, they're paid on the commission of the store. So everyone works as a team, yeah, and that will yeah. always be the way it is. Very different approach. Totally different. Totally, yeah. Totally different, yeah. And, and you can sense it when you walk in. That's yeah. why they don't hover at the door. They're always busy. And, and if some people like doing displays, let them go and do displays. If someone, like working at, someone likes working at the counter, let them work at the counter. Get everyone doing the things that they're good they enjoy. at. And so yeah. they work as yeah. a team. Otherwise, you know, you get that situation where everyone's trying to sort of like come um, cruel all over each other for sales. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog mentality. Yeah. And that will never, ever be the case at Trade Tools. And I remember one thing I read too is you, you mentioned that, um, and obviously it shows because it's so competitive, is that there's very small margins on the product, the power tools, I guess, essentially. It's very, very tight. So it makes it hard then. You've got to turn over a lot of products because of those margins being so small, which then you get guys turning up next door who are trying to, take a customer off you for $1.50 cheaper? Um, the margins aren't quite as bad as they seem on the surface because 
like the electrical industry in general, fridges, washing machines and whatever, the margins up front are quite small. Sometimes there is no margin up front, but we rely upon our rebates from our suppliers to supply us with margin. No, and I that is the case yeah. in, in many instances. I mean, even the car industry is going that way. See, I've never understood that rebate model. Like, I know the electrical wholesalers, that's, they rely on that from Clipsal and all yeah, the rest yeah, of yeah. it. Yeah. But I suppose when you come from the other trade service world, it's like, well, here's my product. If I can put 20% on the price or whatever, plus my time to install it, job done, move on. Mm. But that's a far more complex way when you're working on rebates, isn't it? Well, you have to see it from a supplier's point of view. I'm one of the world's largest tool companies. I won't say the name, but I know the, I know the president. Um, he's Japanese. And I said to him years ago, quite naively, why are you so keen to make sure that all of your dealers make a profit? And he said something I'll never forget. He said, because I like to get paid. And one of the reasons that the, the industry such as this one and many others has been structured the way it is is that even though the margins are low at the front, there is some margin at the back paid either quarterly or half yearly, so that at least the dealer is getting some margin in order to run his business. There are a great many retailers that will just carve prices to the bone right up until the moment they go bankrupt. And I remember years ago, I was shown a cartoon that hung on the side of a, hung on the side of a workshop in Sydney where it showed a, a derelict man sat on a park bench drinking out of a, a bottle out of a brown paper bag and he was dressed in rags. And he was chatting to a young guy and the caption underneath him read, I don't know why I went broke, I was always the cheapest. <laughs> That's a really good, I know. good caption, that. Never yeah. forgot that, yeah. you know? Yeah, that is really good. And mm. it's frustrating, especially from the service industry, um, and I see it too, we've got customers, 20 years loyalty, you get a new projects manager comes in and all of a sudden he says, oh, well, this guy on a, on a 20,000 job, the job was 500 dollars cheaper. And you're like, profit's not a dirty word. Profit means I can support you. Profit means I answer the phone. Profit means I keep going. Profit means everyone's happy for $500. That's not a smart decision. I think you can drill down a bit further than that. If someone's making excessive profit, then they yep. don't deserve your business. Yep. But if your profit is reasonable and your service is good and everything about it is fair, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know? yeah. And businesses do need to make some sort of profit in order to stay in business, be able to weather bad times, and in order to expand. Yeah. And if you yeah. don't do that, you end up going, you end up going to the wall. Yeah. You just do. And a lot of people yeah. don't seem to understand that. And there are, we always think, and I've had this philosophy for years, that 90% of our customers are reasonable, honest, hard-working people. Yeah. There is that 10% that spend their entire life trying to chisel, trying to you know, make sure people do worse than them. Um, they try and play life as a game in which they wish to win and create a lot of losers. And those, that 10% of customers we can afford to lose. Yeah. You know, like one came in to me years ago. I was, I was uh, standing next to a, an old colleague of mine who I was, I'm still friends with, and he was a trade tools guy. And um, th th that was when my old company, Glenfords, was still trading. And they, they went bankrupt, actually. They were sent bankrupt in 2011, purely through poor management. Um, and the woman actually said to my colleague, 
She wanted a price on the Makita power tool. And he said, I think he said it was $145. And she said, I can get it round at Glenford for 139 And my colleague <laughs> said, OK, do they have one in stock? And she said, no. And my colleague said, well, $139 is my price when I haven't got one in stock. <laughs> <laughs> Therein lies a lesson, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you mentioned you retired. You just come in to, to oversee the... I'm the landlord. Yeah. <laughs> so the succession plan, where, where to? What, what keeps happening? Um, or how, how do you, as... I know you said you haven't done, built empires, but you've built something special and it's big. How do you make sure it runs the way you would want it to run? Onwards and well, upwards? businesses never run themselves. Um, and we've got family members working here. There's my daughter working downstairs in charge of marketing. Um, we have uh, five other directors. Um, the one that out of that those that has been here the least is our... Uh, uh, our chief financial officer, he's only been here 15 years. I say only and I smile when I say it. The rest have been here for 20 years plus. And they all know the inside and out. The inside, they know this business inside out. They've all come up through the ranks. And so we do have quite a lot of people up here that um, know this business really well. And we do have in head office here, most of the people that work up here in the management team are also shareholders. So they've got skin in the game. Yeah. So if I dropped dead tomorrow, I think it would continue on as it is, maybe with a few changes. Yeah. I'll just make sure I keep them on the straight and narrow and they don't forget uh, what our around. principles are. You know? <laughs> yeah. Never an easy thing, you know. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine too, because yeah. it's, especially when you, you built it, you know, you didn't walk into it. It's... Yeah, but I mean, I built it with the help of a lot of other people, you know. Yeah. I'll never forget that. Yeah. And they've been rewarded because of it. Everyone wins. Just, yeah. yeah just because I mean, Trade Tools does very well. That's no secret, you know. Yeah. But we do it because we follow old-fashioned business principles that work. And it's probably like asking a parent which kid's their favourite. Do you have a favourite brand of the Power Tool range? Is there one that's got... I know years ago... Yeah, I do. Was, you do? Yeah. Are you allowed to say it or will no. that upset too many people? I upset too many people. <laughs> I don't want to upset my suppliers, you know. I, I remember years ago, I mean, because you... Well, back in the... In the nineties, even there was there was your hardware shops, and then there was specialty shops. Like if you wanted to buy a drill, you went to a motor rewinder. They used to sell Makita and Matavos yeah, yeah. and all yeah, the yeah. rest of it. Yeah. And then it was. Would it be fair to say that you were one of the first that brought all of that under one roof? Yeah, in Queensland, together? we were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah we it wasn't were. really happening before then. Yeah, and I and mean, years ago, brands... years ago, hardware the hardware stores were they ruled the roost in many ways, and there were some good hardware companies too that are no longer here which is a shame. The competition in the hardware end of the industry has been virtually wiped out by Bunnings, of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people in the old days used to go to hardware stores to buy a new electric drill or a new miter saw or whatever. And then tool specialists started to come on the scene. Uh, and it was also at the same time when power tool companies started to make more new and innovative products. Yeah. And air tools started to come on the market. And it started to become a little bit too complicated for the average hardware store to be able to get ahead around it. Yeah. So you needed a specialist. And, I mean, you can walk into Bunnings today, and Bunnings are a good hardware company. You know, I don't take that away from them. And you can buy a Makita cordless drill for sure. But if you want to go back and buy a switch, because the switch is worn out no, after two years, yeah. they won't know what yeah. to do. I mean, no. they will refer you to trade tools. Yeah. And we have them under the counter. 
you know. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. you can come into us and you can buy the stuff that you need. So actually Bunnings are very good for us because they send customers to us all the time. Yeah, two hard baskets, send it over the yep. road. In yeah. fact, my own wife has gone in there to buy something at Bunnings and I said, go, go to Trade Tools. <laughs> you know, and we didn't know what, what she wanted. Otherwise, she would have come here in the first place. So they do it all the time. So, you know, we do warranties for the hardware companies. Um, we warranty agents for everything we sell. Um, yeah, I mean, we're a specialist and that's what we do. 90% of what we sell, you can't buy in a normal hardware company. Yeah, definitely. Just You just can't, yeah. you know. Well, and also the, the the quality spectrum. You know, it's very hard. Like Bunnings, everything tends to be cost-driven. But then if you're like, I want a better hammer, I want a better saw, it, that that then you lead you to a trade tools where you can buy, give me the option to go better, which a lot of hardware is just volume, just turn over the product. But... But they don't, they don't pretend to be specialists. No, I mean, and I say this to people, that they say about Bunnings, especially about Bunnings. I say, okay, if you're an electrician, you go to your electrical wholesaler. Yeah. You, you go to Bunnings if your wholesaler is closed on a Sunday. Exactly right. If you're a plumber, you will go to your plumbing supplier. Yep. You generally won't go to Bunnings. No, yeah. Um, and that's always been the way. Yeah. So the hardwares are there to really look after the home user, DIY people, and the occasional tradesman. Yeah. If they try and get into the trade uh, seriously, they, 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 they never be able to do it. In fact, Bunnings have virtually run up the white flag, and they've actually started their own tour company called really? TKD, Toolkit Depot. They've opened their first uh, pilot stores in WA. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So but, it's a I mean, separate store to Bunnings? Separate store. They virtually said they can't get into the tool industry. They've got to open a separate company, which is strange because already, they already own a separate um, specialist uh, tool supplier uh, in, in the name of Blackwoods, which is an old, well-established company. But they decided to open their own TKD tool stores. But they've already advertised the fact that the people that work there don't get paid commission and it's just going to be another kind of a Bunnings entity. It's going to yeah. be a tool company run by Bunnings. It won't be a, a family business like this one that is, you know, yeah. seriously into this stuff. And on the Bunnings uh, front, uh, I, I saw a comment made once where you said you'd never sell. So no doubt, be it Bunnings or any of the other big ones, because is it Total Tools and someone else is owned by by Bunnings or Metacash? To or? Total Tools is owned by Metcash, which is Metcash, IGA, right. yeah. Right. They bought okay. it a year or so ago, yeah. So. And that's, no matter what offer comes, it's like, no, nah, we're not here for the payout, we're here to, to keep doing what we're doing. Well, I won't say we'd never sell. I think we'd have to have all the shareholders on board. I mean, I'm retired, so, you so, know, yeah, I do what yeah. my fellow shareholders decided to do, but I don't think we'd ever sell. We'd toy with the idea of going public, putting it on the stock market. Well, even that... I don't know if there's, yeah. there'd be too many restrictions and it would, you know, tie us up too much, I don't know. Yeah. We thought about it and we haven't done much about it, tell you the truth. But if you don't need to, if you're in such a stable position, you're yeah. debt-free, you're growing organically, yeah. it, and you've got... We, I mean, we culture. double our size every 10 years on average. So even with the property prices going through the roof, like if you were to buy this you know, today, the, I'd hate to think what the land value here would be astronomical. It doesn't, doesn't derail, because you know, like you mentioned before, this the housing, the, the income ratio to property prices is getting bigger, 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 you know. It's still feasible to keep pushing through, even though a block of land in Burley is going to be so expensive now as to 10 years ago. It, it doesn't derail any progress? Um, it makes things a bit harder. 
I mean, this building we paid, um, it owes us about $12.5 million. And I've got a cash offer sitting in my desk of, of uh, over twice that. Wow. And we said no. Our Burley building is a good example. We built, bought that, I think, two years ago, because we used to rent down there. And we paid 3.9 million for it. It's just been revalued at 5.9 million. So property prices have gone nuts. Yeah. They haven't gone up as much in the regions, which is good. And we're looking in the regional areas to buy real estate at the moment. Yeah. We're currently looking at Townsville, Rocky and Mackay. Yeah, and Ballina, of course. It seems to be more value and more less of those big spikes and troughs. Yeah, that's right. You, yeah. you do get more value. Yeah. I mean, we were looking around Ballina and Lismore, but we couldn't find anywhere that didn't flood. And yeah. uh, fortunately, we, uh, the building that we nearly bought down there um, turned out it uh, never flooded. In the last flood, it went under. Oh, so good thing. So we dodged a bullet there, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that's the plans yeah. for trade talks. You know, we're going to continue up and down the coast. Well, Greg, you've answered all my questions. You've shot through the list and... Well, I hope I've given you something to work with. You've given uh, me plenty. With, no, yeah. no, that's a great story. It's a really good story. It's, it's, so, it's refreshing to find someone that's not obsessed with continuous growth at all costs. Well, the thing is, to people I mean, I don't want to sound like a screaming greenie, but, you know, in many ways, growth has killed our world, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, there's only so much growth you can have before, you know, ecologies start collapsing. And I think we're seeing that now. Yeah. Um, and whereas I'm not totally on the side of the greenies, and I think they've got some of their figures wrong, um, and I'm not so sure about global warming either, there's, there's two sides to that story. Yeah. Without any doubt, the world is getting warmer, but it's actually getting back to the temperatures that we enjoyed maybe six or 700 years ago because we came through a mini ice age. But the one thing I do agree with is that we've trashed our world. Yeah. We've got seas of plastic. Um, we've made a mess. Yeah. And so this continual, you know, uh, pursuing of growth has got to come to an end at one point. Yeah. And, you know, we, we acknowledge that here. We're not out to just grow this business so we're the biggest and the best. We're out to, to be part of society, to do a job, to, as, my, as I've quoted before, you know, you know, partake in the world's second oldest industry, to supply tools to people that need it, and to do the right thing by our staff and suppliers. And I think we do that. And, and if we grow slower than our competitors, well, that's, that's the way it is. I'm happy with that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a win-win for everyone. Like, you've proved that everyone can, can take a piece of that pie without having to, to kill and, and yeah. destroy the competition left and right of you. There's plenty of business for everyone. No, that's great. That's the history of trade tools. Yeah, I'm glad I got it down on tape. <laughs> 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 no, that's really good. No, that's good. And it's good, like, you know, you... You've got your daughter that works here as well. You've built, you've built something for people. You've, you've kept the soul, but you also have the success, you know. You've managed to do both, which is yeah, it's a rare achievement. Well, one of my neighbours um, had a very successful retail business, actually with 17 stores, and he sold it to a large conglomerate, and they completely wrecked it in three years. And what is the go? That happens all the time, doesn't it? I think too many... You know, suits and corporates come in and think they know better than the founder, yep. and then they make a lot of mistakes. And uh, yep. you know, the first people that leave is their customers, followed by their staff, yep. followed by their suppliers, and then they've got no business left. And it happens all the time. Mm. And even the big corporate takeovers, like you see, a company will come in and buy a brand to shut it. 
You know, what was that all about? Well, you can't yeah. learn business out of a book, can you? It's like learning yeah. to swim out of a book, you know? Yeah, exactly right. You can't. You know? yeah. It's all very well until yeah. you get in the water and yeah. then you find you can't do it, you know? Well, if you are going to read the book, understand that you're still going to have to learn when you go out and jump in the pool. Yeah. Because that's what I think it is. You get, they get puffed up with this textbook arrogance. And it's like, you've, you've, at some point, you've got to listen to the guy who did it, who's done it, who understands it. Often the person... Yeah, but they don't. They don't. They don't. They don't listen. And what yeah. I find odd is it's not the Model T. This isn't the first time. You can look back and see this happen last year, the year before. The year. There's always an example of this reoccurring circle. But there's just the blinkers are on, full steam ahead. Well, I learned a few things from my dad. He died in 2005. He was in his 80s. And um, he was a character, actually. A good salesman, too. And he knew this industry quite well. And years ago, he used to have employed reps. And what he wanted to make sure was that they weren't going to cause a mess. And so if he... If he decided to give a guy a job, and the guy usually, because he was a rep, was going to get a company car, my father would always accompany that man out to his car before he offered him the job. And he'd see what condition his car was in. Because if he kept it well. And if it was a mess, he knew that's exactly how he was going to run the company car. Yeah. And he always had a saying, there is no such thing as a successful, untidy business. Yeah, and I true. never forgot that, right? Yeah. And I've said to people, if you show me a successful, untidy business, I'm, I'm keen to see one because I've never <laughs> seen one, right? And I have my own funny little quirks. Um, if anyone comes to see me for a job, I'll make sure they come down and they'll sit down, right? And we'll, we'll do what you have to do and have a chat and whatever. If they're going to be a salesperson, I've very, very often asked, me, asked them to tell me a joke. You'd be amazed how many salespeople can't tell you a joke. Okay. If they've got a sense of humour, they can tell you a joke. Even if it's a bad one, I don't care. You know? yeah, Some of my yeah. best jokes I've heard are interviews yeah. from people that I put them on the spot. You know, And I want to see what happens when you put them under pressure. But the next thing I check is, when they get up to leave, I see if they put their chair back in place. Yep. If they do, it shows they have a tidy, ordered mind. Yep. If they don't, They've got no place working at trade tools because I will spend my entire life tidying up after them. Coming up, yeah, yeah. No yeah, such yeah. thing as a successful untidy business. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. And and you've just nailed in on a few basic subtle body language. They're little windows into the brain of the person you're about to employ. Yeah, yeah, and that obviously comes with time. You know, you've just nailed in on those things with time. And, yeah, that's just experience, isn't it? That's right. That's like my first boss in London when I was 20 at the estate agent said to me, he said, if you say good morning to a lawyer, confirm it in writing. <laughs> <laughs> and I always do. <laughs> so if it's not in writing, not interesting. So when you go into a trade tool store and you ask for a quote, it's over 50 bucks, they'll pull out a quote card and they'll write it on the quote card for you. So you walk away with that quote card and the price is on the back. You know why? Because if they come back a week later... They always remember a lower price than the one they were quoted. Yeah, they never yeah. remember a higher price. Isn't yeah, that strange? Yeah, yeah that's odd. So we say, you, you got your quote card? Oh, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. It was, you know. Yeah. We yeah. do that all the time. Yeah, I can imagine. And they also yeah. walk out with a quote card. <clears throat> you can walk into any of my competitors and walk out without a quote card, without a card. Oh, so they go home and we're the only one they got a card and a price on. So where are they going to go back to? So all these funny old things, we make yeah. sure that our guys do them, you know. We, they, they don't want to do them, that's great, as long as they want to work elsewhere, because they won't work here. And do you do the pop-in? Is it like a thing of that, you know, you'll pop in down at Narang and just turn up and... Yep. So that's, that's a... 
Do it all the time. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went down to Burley there, they gave me a yoga lesson. We had, we had a yoga school in the middle of the uh, store and there was customers walking around us all laughing. I was trying to teach the boys some yoga because they were trying to get, both of them had bad backs, so I thought I'll fix that. So those are the sorts of things we do. If you can make your staff laugh, you know, you've engaged them already. Yeah. If you can engage your staff, you get them on side, you know, that's what you need. I, um, Bob Ansett said um, that he got told when he was young, you, you go into business for one or two reasons, either to make a profit or to enjoy yourself. And if you can do the two... Yeah, that's yeah. right. I've never heard that, yeah. I think I enjoy myself more than I make a profit sometimes. <laughs> Especially these, mind you. <laughs> All right. Oh, no, that's, that's great. Thank you so much for that. Eh? I Pleasure. appreciate your time. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do know anyone that you think would like it, please feel free to share this episode or any of the past episodes. It is the only way the show will grow. And your listenership and support is truly appreciated. If you'd like to know more about the show, please head to bumpingintocomau where you'll also find the complete backlog of episodes and a list of coming shows. Thanks very much for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode.